Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Just a few items of information to get credit, CME credit for today's presentation. Text V5FD, which is also up on the wall. You can text that at any time today and, and uh, submit for your credits. There are no conflicts of interest reported for uh, Dr. Metley, and he's going to be introduced to us today by James Stahl. Dr. Stahl is an Associate Professor of Medicine, and he's Section Chief of General Internal Medicine here. So, Jim, come tell us about him. All right. Well, uh, actually, it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce Josh. Um, you know, it's been a long time since Osler said pneumonia was the old man's friend, and we've uh, we've come a long way in terms of our treatment and being able to take care of uh, take care of people with pneumonia. And and I have to say, Josh has done a lot to under understand and help describe what we can do. So briefly, uh, Josh is a, ch a chief of division of GIM at uh, Mass General Hospital, and he's also the Peter Gross Professor of Medicine uh, at MGH and Professor of Medicine at, at Harvard Medical School. Um, Josh has been doing a lot of research for many years in, in pneumonia. He's one of the lead investigators of the pneumonia port, for those of you guys who remember that large effort uh, way back when. And his research uh, spans um, the epidemiology of drug resistance among um, bacterial pathogens and pneumonia and interventions to improve the quality of treatment and decisions for respiratory tract infections. Um, in addition to being an excellent and uh, well, very well-published researcher, he is a profoundly excellent teacher and mentor. And I've had that privilege myself when I was at MGH and uh, learned many things from Josh. Um, he's been recognized for a number of prestigious awards, including the Lindback Foundation for Distinguished Teaching at Penn, the Mid-Career and Mentorship Award at SGIM in 2010, and the Arthur Asbury Outstanding Faculty Mentorship Award at the Perlman School of Medicine at UPenn. Um, Josh also oversees, on top of everything else, a large primary care network that excludes 18 clinical sites and over 200 primary care physicians, and also oversees the hospitalist program there at MGH. Um, and there are numerous other degrees and things that we could talk about, but I'd rather just let Josh <laughs> speak for himself because he's more impressive than my introduction. Thanks, <laughs> you. I, uh, I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, James is an old friend, and, uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't call out uh, uh, my, one of my first early mentors and the person who started our division at Mass General, Al Mully. And uh, it's actually one of the great pleasures of my life to uh, be the second division chief really formally inducted in that division. And I think it's a great division and one that owes a tremendous gratitude to you, Al. And uh, just so you know, we're continuing to do the good stuff. Um, so. Um, it's true, I don't have any financial disclosures to provide, but I will give you this disclosure, which is that um, when uh, James asked me to come, I actually thought what I would be doing is actually unveiling. You would be one of the first audiences to see the new American Thoracic Society, Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines for the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia. I'm one of the co-leads of that committee. It's been 11 years since the guidelines were last updated. Uh, and uh, what my disclosure is, we're not yet done. We've been at it for four and a half years. Um, you may ask why, uh, and you might also ask, why is a general internist doing this? And those two things are not unrelated. Uh, in the intervening 11 years, there's been a tremendous consideration of the various influences that have driven guideline development. And uh, the ATS in particular has put in a pretty uh, austere, let's just say, or rigorous approach to how we look at evidence and who can be in the room when we discuss evidence. 
I'm in no way convinced that we're going to come up with anything that's qualitatively or quantitatively differently than what we would have done on a Saturday afternoon four and a half years ago. But nonetheless, because they're still being debated, what I'm going to do is bring you as close as I can to what the guideline is going to say, but I can't tell you definitively on every issue. However, if you ask me, I'll tell you exactly what I think is going to happen. So um, really in pneumonia, uh, as with many diseases, but I think pneumonia uh, demonstrates this particular issue very well, there are fundamentally three management challenges that we have to think about. And so what I'm going to do today is walk you through those three topics. I'm going to give you a sense of where are we today and particularly create a straw man of what's wrong in this topic. And then I'm going to at least tell you about what I think the future holds for us in terms of where we might go. And those three topics are diagnosis, which has been, I think, one of the great challenges in pneumonia. It's one of the most prevalent infectious diseases where we rarely isolate an infectious organism. And so there's this disconnect in the management, which is actually very challenging and has been hard for people to know what to do in that setting. We can talk about treatment, obviously, and particularly around antimicrobials, but I'm also going to talk about non-antibiotic therapy because I actually think, and many of you will see even very recently papers that have suggested that the management of this disease is changing quite a bit. And then we'll end and talk a little bit about prevention. I'll also take this as an opportunity to weave in some of the own work that we've done over the last couple of decades in this space, particularly in the prevention space. Um, I'll definitely save time at the end for questions, but if I say something inflammatory or ridiculous, by all means, please stop me. Don't, don't let me keep going. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's easy to forget sometimes uh, the health impact of community-acquired pneumonia CAP has, uh, both in this country and I'll show, I'll show you in the developing world and, and globally. Um, this is data that was actually created by a, a other fellow from the MGH, uh, Greg Grunke, uh, who did work looking at claims data over a period of time, uh, 20 years or so, and has extended this work more recently. The punchline actually that was reported, if you look at overall mortality, this is in the 65 and older group using Medicare claims data, is that there's been improvement in survival from around 18, 19% to around 15% 30-day survival. It's hard for me to see that as a fantastic victory, particularly if one considers that that 18 to 19% is about what it was in the 1950s and late 1940s after the introduction of penicillin. So in a very real way, I would say that the amount of real clinical progress that has happened in this field has really been fairly limited until recently. Globally, an even bigger problem, and we don't often realize this, respiratory infections in general, um, lower respiratory tract infections, and in particular pneumococcal respiratory tract infections, are a major cause of morbidity and mortality. This map actually shows you death rates due to pneumococcal disease, excluding children, this is in children, who are HIV positive. So this is really kind of a staggering idea in the current year of how many kids in particular are dying from lower respiratory tract infections in a, from the context in this country where we think about this as very much preventable and certainly treatable. So there's a lot of work to do if you think about this from a public health uh, burden. For much of you know, the history of us in, in medicine, uh, certainly we already heard about Osler, you know, to talk about pneumonia was to talk about this. And this is a sputum gram stain, and this shows you gram-positive diplococci, the classic pneumococcal isolate. Um, this is really a historical oddity. I mean, one of the things that we continue to debate in the guidelines is whether, you know, in general, medical students should be doing this, gram staining in the lab. First of all, there are no labs, so that's out. And second of all, it turned out that even when they did it, it didn't actually do any good. So, so unless you want to torture somebody, there's really no reason to have them do this. Um, but the other problem about this whole story is that, and I'm going to show you this data in a little bit, 
this organism as a major cause of pneumonia is really on the decline. Uh, and so even though a lot, and this is another sort of disclosure, a lot of what I'm going to talk to you about today is sort of rooted in this idea that this is the disease we're treating. In reality, what we're going to have to increasingly recognize is that this disease is going away, but the total burden of pneumonia is not necessarily going away, so other pathogens are clearly rising. And that is really one of, one of the great unknowns at the moment is what are we fighting? And it gets back to this earlier idea that I said, which is that amongst infectious diseases, this is really one of the most odd infectious diseases to the degree that we don't ever actually isolate the infectious organism. So there's a lot of empiricism. And you can imagine, if it's not this organism, but it's something else, then the empirical treatment should change. And that's really one of the challenges for us. Let me start to weave in some of our own data over many years of doing surveillance for pneumonia and pneumococcal disease. Um, and just reaffirm some things that we all learned a long time ago, I think, but, but are important to keep in mind. Uh, in adults, this is the old man's friend. It rises steeply with advancing age, the incidence of the disease and the mortality from pneumonia. It has an interesting disparity around it, and I'll come back to this when we talk about prevention. Uh, in this country, in particular, African Americans are uh, almost uh, one and a half to two-fold more likely to get and die from pneumococcal disease, Native Americans even more so. And just as a kind of foreshadowing, and nobody really knows why. And so that's a kind of a major challenge. It's in part related to obviously issues of social deprivation and the extreme poverty and homelessness. We see staggeringly high rates of pneumonia and pneumococcal disease. So, uh, you know, a highly important, highly lethal disease that's actually quite common. A key issue is always going to be, how do you find these patients when they present? And the problem is that most patients who present with pneumonia present with an acute cough illness. And if one does series after series after series and asks, amongst everybody walking through the door who's complaining of a cough, a cough and a fever, or some such combination, how many of them have pneumonia? In most series, the percentage, these are showing you uh, in number of visits, but the percentage is usually 2 to 5%. So there's very much this idea of a kind of a needle in a haystack problem. Because what I would submit to you, and this is one of the issues, which is a kind of a side conversation we're going to have today about overuse of antibiotics, is that on this list, that's the only condition for which there is clear evidence we should treat with antibiotics. We could debate the issues on sinusitis. Uh, I'll show you that there's no issue around acute bronchitis, certain subforms of pharyngitis, which are vanishingly less common. Um, and so the problem is, if you're going to treat everybody as if they have pneumonia, that's fine, except we have this problem of overuse. But if you really only want to treat the patients who have pneumonia correctly, you have to find them. And finding them is going to be hard. Now, just one, this is a different talk, so you could invite me back. But for anybody who's wondering why I said what I said about the failure of antibiotics be useful for any of these other conditions, there is an inordinately large body of evidence that would suggest that antibiotics for what are predominantly viral respiratory infections, not surprisingly, have absolutely no symptomatic or outcome benefit. Uh, this is probably the largest, but actually quite old study. And uh, one of the reasons you know it's old is it's a clinical trial of doxycycline. Um, still, though, one of the best antibiotics to use for respiratory tract infections that shows uh, in the resolution of cough absolutely no benefit for those who received antibiotics from those who did not. Uh, and one of the striking things is that, um, and in part it's because of the diagnostic problem that I highlighted for you, even though the vast majority of patients who present with cough have this condition and should not get antibiotics, 
we know in series after series, especially amongst adults, somewhere around 70 to 80% of patients who present like this do get antibiotics. So a phenomenal overtreatment problem, which is going to reflect, as I'm going to show you in a second, that the diagnostic abilities here are very limited. So the reason that we're doing this in part, I think, is because there's, there's probably some incorrect perception among some providers that there are benefits to antibiotics, for example, that they'll prevent somebody from getting pneumonia, which is also not true. Um, but I think the biggest issue is that people see somebody and they're trying to figure out who's got that condition that's treatable. They, the errors of omission are worse than the errors of commission here, and so people treat. So work that we did actually started when I was a fellow here uh, and has continued for a long time, was trying to kind of figure out how good can we find those 2 to 5% in a sea of people presenting with an acute cough illness. And we looked at a lot of different scenarios and a lot of assembled data doing a kind of a diagnostic test accuracy perspective. And what I'm plotting you here are sort of post-test probabilities, starting with that 2 to 5% probability going in that somebody might have pneumonia, and the probability that they would then have pneumonia if they had any of these different combinations of findings on exam or on history. And the takeaway points would be, first of all, that in the best of all scenarios, and the ranges represent a range across studies of what people have found, in the best of all scenarios, maybe it's a 50-50 shot in the classic patient in front of you who's got isolated pulmonary findings of fever and is producing sputum. I would be perfectly okay if we only treated the people at a 50% probability of pneumonia, quite frankly. But just to be a little sobering, it's only 50%. Half of them don't have pneumonia if one actually pursued this. Um, and the other key issue is that for those who have actually no abnormalities, vital sign abnormalities, the probability probably goes down to about 1% or 2%, which begs the question how often physicians would be willing to miss 1% or 2% of cases in this setting. And I think it's an interesting question that is still being somewhat debated. Now, let me pause here and say this kind of work obviously is based on an idea that we have a gold standard of what we're talking about. And I began the whole talk by saying that this is not based, for example, on on microbiological diagnosis. This is largely based on radiographic diagnosis. And we know that chest radiography as a tool here is good but not great. We know that it misses 10 to 20% of cases of pneumonia that can be identified on either higher intensity imaging, say CT scanning, or on subsequent follow-up imaging. And we know that there's a lot of false positive, too, of people who've proven to have other kinds of interstitial problems. And so, I will be the first to admit that how we think about this and how we evaluate diagnostic tools is hampered greatly by the fact that it's not entirely clear that we always know who's in the which bucket. I might say that for me, really, the real question is who should get an antibiotic and who shouldn't, and I'm less worried about who has, you know, what we would technically define as schmutz on their chest x-ray. But in this field today, still, most people would assert that the gold standard here is going to be a radiograph that shows an infiltrate. So we've done a lot of work, I'm just going to show you a little of this, is to try to codify this idea that at least we should understand that in patients who have normal vital signs and normal chest examinations, the probability of pneumonia in those patients is actually quite low. And at least from a management point of view or a diagnostic point of view, the recommendation that we've put forward and, and tested in a variety of settings has been in those patients, withholding further testing and withholding treatment is actually safe and effective. Uh, and one example of a trial that we completed uh, just a little while ago was done at Geisinger, in which we randomized uh, a large number of their primary care practices um, 
It's funny, when you go to Danville, you stay at the Pine Barn Inn, and I confused that when you said I was staying at the Hanover Inn, and I thought that's going to be a real schlep to get to the talk, but it turns out they're totally two different places. Um, so, um, and what we did was we, it, we basically used a lot of education and opinion leader work to get doctors to think about how to incorporate this kind of diagnostic test information into their management strategies, uh, and sort of essentially codified this algorithm for how to treat patients with respiratory infections. And actually, it was a three-arm trial because some of the practices got this in what we might call the traditional, you know, pocket-laminated cards or posters on the wall. But a bunch of the practices, this was incorporated into their EHR, which was is and was epic at the time. Uh, and so we had an actual hypothesis that integrating it into the workflow of the EHR would be much more effective. It turned out not really. Both both strategies worked in that they reduced the amount of antibiotic prescribing. Um, but the difference between those that were done in the computerized decision support system, the far right, and those that were done in a kind of, I would say, a, a cheap, just put a poster on the wall, were really no different. And I, I do, again, a somewhat sidebar point, but I do think this is an interesting and rich area for future work. We all are now struggling with how to use our EHRs in ways that is not overwhelmingly burdensome and alert fatigue. And there, I think there are lots of examples in which just because you can put it into the EHR doesn't mean you need to or should to, and I think this is an example of that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, the, the, the theme of today is where are we, where are we going? And uh, even over dinner last night, we talked about this, so I'm going to talk about it. So procalcitonin is, I would say, sort of like the current darling of the people who are looking for a magic test, right? This dates back to measuring the white blood cell count or the SED rate or CRP. Now we've got PCT. And in Europe, PCT is probably one of the most ordered tests in the ambulatory setting, if not the most ordered test, for this reason, which is it's been shown mostly by the Swiss group, that when you measure PCT, you can greatly reduce your use of antibiotics, either by not starting antibiotics. For, uh, in this lower right corner here, these are the patients who have non-radiographic lower respiratory tract infections, so they don't have pneumonia. And basically, you could cut in half at least the percentage of them when the black bars who get antibiotics. And the clinical outcomes are identical, but the use of antibiotics is much less. And in the patients with pneumonia, it's not necessarily the case that you cannot start antibiotics based on the PCT, but as the PCT falls, and typically it's when it falls by 80 to 90% of what it started at or it gets to less than 0.1 nanograms per ml, you can stop antibiotics. And so you can treat people for more like five days than seven or 10 days or longer. And so um, in this sort of example of where I sort of want to tell you where we're going, but I'm not 100% sure this is where we're going to go, I think the evidence is actually pretty good these days that PCT is a tool to help you determine duration of therapy for patients with pneumonia. Of course, it implies that you're measuring it, so it's a little bit of a circular argument for a second. But it's not a very good tool, in my opinion, for deciding who to treat up front. It is not a tool to decide who has pneumonia and who has, does not have pneumonia. In this study, the patients were already sorted out based on their radiographic findings. Uh, and in a more recent study, it was determined that the sensitivity at best of procalcitonin for patients with pneumonia is about 80%, which is probably too low, I think, in most cases to actually reliably just not treat somebody based on that. So we don't have the magic bullet of, I think, a quick test done in the office to exclude pneumonia absent what I've told you up to this point. So we're still a little bit in a hole as it comes to sorting out who does and doesn't have this illness. Okay. So let's pivot and let's talk about uh, treatment for a little bit. 
So, as I said, it's been 11 years um, uh, since these guidelines were released. By the way, these were the first, I think, joint IDSA-ATS guidelines. Prior to that, the Infectious Disease Society and the American Thoracic Society had released separate guidelines for literally 20 years about how to treat pneumonia. And interestingly, even though they were the same people in the panels, the guidelines didn't agree, which is kind of amusing. <laughs> it's probably one of the reasons why they've rehauled the entire system and decided to get a couple of general internists sitting in the room, I guess. Um, so the thing I want to focus in on here, um, these will be familiar to many of you. This, we've been living in this world for a very long time, despite really a lot of stuff that's happening in terms of the epidemiology. Uh, a lot of reliance on respiratory fluoroquinolones and beta-lactams plus macrolides, although as some of you may know, there have been a series of recent trials that have suggested that beta-lactams alone may be safe in some patients who are hospitalized. Uh, and then among hospitalized patients, a lot of push for what we call dual therapy, even though the benefits of dual therapy are not always clear why. Um, and then in the outpatient setting, we've spent a lot of time relying on macrolides and doxycycline. Um, but the interesting door that they opened up, they opened up two doors in 2007, which we're still trying to shut. And one of the doors that they opened was this idea that you should start to use a respiratory fluoroquinolone if you're concerned that there's resistance to macrolides. And so now I'm going to pivot and talk to you about drug resistance. Um, because these guidelines were largely based on treating pneumococcal disease. And so even if you think about where we're going, this issue that maybe pneumococcal disease isn't the problem anymore, let's just keep that in our viewfinder because it is still a serious cause of pneumonia and talk a little bit about which drugs work and which don't. So as I was coming out of uh, fellowship, the, the thing that was really exploding was a lot of interest uh, in this field around emerging <laughs> drug resistance, antibiotic resistance amongst bacterial pathogens, uh, in this case, pneumococcus. Um, and this is plotting data from the CDC, and I'll show you very recent data from the CDC that shows, I think this is largely during the Clinton years, although I don't understand the correlation, that um, antibiotic resistance is rising relatively steeply, in this case, to penicillin amongst isolates from their large national surveillance of patients with pneumonia who actually isolated pneumococcus, typically from sterile sites, so blood being the most common way. So it's a subset of all pneumonia patients. But it's really been the, the guidepost for us deciding what can you use and what can you not use in this field. And so th this is a, I can't give a talk without giving, paying homage to, homage to some of my heroes in this whole space. So why did people even care about this in the first place? It's because they were trying to imagine what would it be like if we didn't have antibiotics to treat respiratory infections? What was it like before there were antibiotics? So this is really one of the really seminal papers in the annals that came out uh, in the 1950s, uh, written by Gold and Austrian. Uh, and uh, I don't know Gold, but I did get have the privilege of meeting Bob Austrian, who was at Penn until he passed away at the age of like 96, came to work every day of his life. And he spent 70 years studying pneumococcal disease. And the story about Bob Austrian was that in the 1940s, he was running the first field trial of a vaccine against pneumococcal disease, the progenitor of the 23-valent polysaccharide vaccine, which he really is the person who created it. And they pulled his funding in around 1947 or 1948, and that was because of the introduction of penicillin. And, and they, they said, well, we don't need a vaccine anymore. We've got penicillin. So thanks for your work, but move on. And I will say, if you have had the privilege of meeting Bob Austin, this is a guy who was not going to move on. He did the same thing in his lab for 70 years. He was incredibly doggedly focused. Um, he was a short man, but a giant in his field. He wore a three-piece suit to the softball game. It was very humorless, but very lovely. Um, uh, when I wrote my grant, I sent it to him to read, 
Uh, and he, uh, he, he called me up and he said, this is Austrian, come over to my office. And I came over and he goes, when is this due? And I said, we have to submit it in three weeks. And he said, well, that's a pity. <laughs> and that was that. Um, um, so then uh, I said, well, maybe if you were on the grant, they would like it better. And he said, I'll be dead by the time this grant gets funded. I said, well, that's very nice. And he wasn't. He lived like another 10 years. Um, so uh, what, he, uh, what he showed, uh, so in this famous paper, what he showed was, yes, these are historical comparisons between patients in the early pre-antibiotic year, those who got actually horse serum uh, for a brief period of time, uh, these are survival curves, and those who received penicillin. And, and obviously, there has been a huge impact of penicillin on survival for patients who had uh, low bar pneumonia. But what he pointed out was that the 10 to 15% or almost 20% of people who, who die in the first 48 to 96 hours uh, die regardless of receiving therapy or not. And this won't surprise anybody in the room because these are the patients who, at the time of presentation, are already septic. And although we give antibiotics, in some sense, the horse is out of the barn. And so he said, if you want to save these people, you actually have to prevent the disease. Giving them antibiotics is too late. And it was on this paper, in this basis, that they refunded his field trial in South Africa and led eventually to the licensing of polysaccharide vaccine. Um, so, but, but that data has actually informed a lot of people sort of fear of what the world could look like if we lost penicillin or penicillin-like drugs. And so the question is, when you're seeing a patient, when should you worry that the typical first-line therapies are going to work? And what the guidelines said 11 years ago was, well, there are two reasons to worry. One reason would be if they had previously received an antibiotic, because that's going to raise your risk of having a drug-resistant infection. And the second question, which we'll return to, is if you happen to know that in your area there's a lot of drug resistance hanging around. So there are many studies like this which have shown, and this is a, a great work that was done in Canada by a guy who passed away too young named Don Lowe, that showed that amongst those who received different, uh, the patients who had, in this case, erythromycin-resistant pneumococcal disease, so macrolide-resistant pneumonia, these are the probabilities that they would have a resistance depending on what antibiotics they had received in the prior three months. And you can see it goes from 5% probability of having a resistant infection if you had taken no antibiotics to almost 50% if you had taken azithromycin. So as a sidebar, for those of you who are wondering, the ZPAC is actually was like the perfect storm for driving resistance in this field because the whole marketing strategy or the pharmacodynamics of azithromycin, which is you take it for a couple of days and it hangs around forever in, in the pulmonary alveoli, right, at a low level is exactly the sort of microenvironment for selecting for resistant organisms. And so you, you can plot the marketing of this particular agent with the emergence of macular resistance. Fascinating. And actually, indeed, uh, there are these interesting associated properties of this. So this is great data that was published from the EU. Um, uh, this is not going to influence the World Cup, however. Uh, that shows that, um, that there's a direct linear relationship between the per capita consumption of antibiotics in the country and the probabilities of the log odds that, that patients, bless you, that patients will have, uh, uh, in this case, penicillin, but you could think macrolide-resistant pneumonia. So do not get pneumonia in Spain. You can get it in the Netherlands, and a really fascinating kind of relationship. And work that we've done, uh, I'll, I'll return to this map in a second, but this is a map of the Philadelphia region. And it turns out that if you plot the location of patients who have pneumonia, particularly pneumococcal pneumonia, and the yellow dots are those with susceptible infections, and the red dots are those with resistant infections, the further you get from the center of the city, the less your chances are of having a, a resistant infection. I'm sorry, the more your chances are of having resistant infection. Muck, muck that up, right? So it, it goes up almost threefold as you get further out. 
And it's very much a socioeconomic phenomenon. So it's actually what I would call a reverse disparity. So the more affluent the community, the more antibiotics that are used in the community, the more drug resistance there is in the community, which is a sort of an interesting phenomenon. And so because we were interested in this general idea and because we perceived early on that to really be able to guide treatment, we needed to understand what, what the local susceptibilities were, we created our own, our own version of what the CDC had created, which was a surveillance network in what's called the Delaware Valley, which is the five counties that surround Philadelphia. And the idea here was that if we had every hospital, at the time when we started there were 55 hospitals, if every one of them reported all of their pneumococcal isolates to us and we tested them all, we knew, and there's really interesting data that shows that people travel very short distances when they have pneumonia to land in a hospital. We believed that we could actually develop a map of what the local susceptibilities were of the isolates and might be able to actually inform treatment decisions. We also thought we could do a lot of interesting epidemiological studies. So there are about 3.5, 3.7 million people who live in that region and generate about 400 cases a year. And these circles are where the hospitals are. Right, so, so over here is Philadelphia County, Montgomery, Bucks, Chester, Delaware. Ah, I've been away that long. I know it. This area over here is called, uh, I think, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to assume, for, for the argument's sake, that nobody would ever cross this river <laughs> if they got pneumonia to get sick, which is not unreasonable, actually. Um, and, but here's the interesting thing. Even though our maps were based on where people lived and would give us actually pretty valid information about what the local susceptibilities were, the size of the circles are telling you what each hospital thought was the susceptibility pattern for respiratory pathogens in their hospital. And I guess what I want you to see by visual inspection is that small circles are near big circles. And maybe that's not surprising because the catchment areas of hospitals are not necessarily contiguous, right? Your hospital draws from a different way than a local community hospital draws. But if you're a community provider in this region, which do you pay attention to? Right? Most hospitals in this country, most counties in this country, most places in this country are not going to set up their own surveillance networks. They're going to rely on what their hospital antibiograms tell them. And what I'm telling you is that the hospital antibiograms are giving you wildly different information here, anywhere from situations in which there's almost no resistance to there's a tremendous amount of resistance. And if that's how we're going to make decisions about what to treat people with, we've got a serious problem. Now, the other part of their guideline was maybe at some point we should just throw up our hands and say there's just too much resistance and we have to kind of sunset some drugs. And I don't know whether we should just be using national data for this regard because I'm sure there's tremendous heterogeneity across the country. But these are the latest data from the CDC uh, that were released last year, their data through 2016. And you may remember that the number was around 25%. It's not based on any kind of modeling or anything particular suggested that when there's resistance exceeds about 25%, some would say 20%, you should no longer use that drug. Okay? So today, there's about nationally 30% resistance to macrolides in this country. And yet, I mean, we don't have to take a poll, most patients who show up in a clinic and have a pneumonia are probably getting a macrolide, or certainly many are still getting a macrolide. And so this is a conundrum for us. Because if we're going to rely on this data, we're kind of going to have to sunset this drug. Uh, and I don't think anybody wants to do that yet, but it's not clear what the replacement option is going to be. So I would suggest this is actually, from a, a resistance point of view, probably one of the great challenges we have here. Because um, the development of new drugs in this space is almost zero. And that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, relative to other drugs, the development of antibiotics is not a particularly lucrative business. 
right? They're not lifelong drugs. Um, the pipeline is not well primed. New targets are hard to find. It's really drying up rapidly. Uh, and so we don't have new drugs really than we had 30 years ago. And so this is a big deal and not clear what the response should be. One response will be, and I'm going to show you this in a second, is thinking about other treatments and ways to prevent the illness. But this remains a big problem. Now, I do want to say a word about something other than just pneumococcal drug resistance, which is what I've sort of occupied most of the time here with. Um, because there's other, there are other types of drug resistance, and there are other pathogens that cause pneumonia. And one of the big doors that was opened 10 years ago was this idea of HCAP, or healthcare-associated pneumonia. And, you know, in, 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 the, in the list of things that were like, a, ooh, wish we hadn't done that, this would have been definitely high on the list. So the idea came from a good place. Right? The idea was, you know, some patients, albeit a small number of patients, don't have pneumococci or H flu or Moraxella, right? They have some bad bugs. And the two in particular that people are thinking about is staph, in particular methicillin-resistant staph, and pseudomonas, and maybe some other multidrug-resistant gram-negatives. And as I said, since we're really getting very little microbiological data, there was a hunger to figure out which of these patients should be treated not with the standard therapy I showed you, but with extended therapy. Typically, for example, would be vancomycin and piptazo or something like that. And so what was adopted was this idea, well, those patients are likely to be, and each of these were independent risk factors, it's true, patients who had some of these kinds of risk factors. And the idea was if you saw a patient in your hospital that had one of these, they had healthcare-associated pneumonia, not community-acquired pneumonia, and guess what? All of them got vancomycin and piptazo. I mean, in a staggering rise of the use of those drugs. Drugs, in particular vancomycin, right, which was never even designed as a respiratory drug. It's a lousy respiratory drug. Um, and this, this algorithm has never been validated. And, and just to throw salt on the wound, not only was there overuse of the antibiotics, but it was killing people. Right? So multiple studies now have demonstrated quite elegantly, this is Mike Rothberg's data that was part of a large consortium, that for a whole host of different subgroups of patients with community-acquired pneumonia, those that got what was called guideline concordant therapy, in other words, they had an HCAP risk factor, so they were treated with extended spectrum therapy, versus those who had an HCAP risk factor but were treated with the usual fare, say a fluoroquinolone or a macrolide and beta-lactam, mortality was consistently higher in those who were treated as if they had HCAP than those who didn't. So this has to go away. This is killing people. It's not even, it's, it's the opposite of an advance. Uh, and the trick is going to be, what do we do instead? Because there is MRSA out there, and there is pseudomonas out there. Uh, and so where I think this is going to go, and this is one of the ones which is still getting hammered out, is, and we talked a little bit about this last night, is put less emphasis up front on what you empirically treat people with and much more emphasis on what you do in the first 24 to 48 hours when you have some information about what they may or may not have. So, for example, some of you may have seen this week uh, in the journal Clinical Infectious Disease, there was a really lovely study that showed that if you swab somebody's nares for MRSA and it's negative, they do not have MRSA pneumonia. So if you have a very rapid turnaround, you could get that result before you've even made an empirical treatment decision. But at the very least, if you put somebody on vancomycin, swab their nose, and when you find out that they don't have MRSA in the nose, they don't have it in the lung, and stop the vancomycin. And I think it's through that kind of thinking that we will probably get away from this, because we don't have, at the moment anyway, rapid microbiological tests or 
better algorithms yet to help us make more informed matching of who should get these drugs and who shouldn't. And I would freely agree that there are some patients for which getting it right is going to be life-saving. I'm sure that's right. You know, MRSA pneumonia is nasty and bad, um, and you want to treat it. Um, but this is not the way to do it. Okay. So last thing on the treatment, and then we're going to talk about prevention, um, is this really interesting story about steroids. Um, and this is not a, a, you know, a new story. Uh, the concept of using corticosteroids for a whole host of inflammatory, infectious-started conditions has is, is been going on for a while, and of course, is not unrelated to the old Austrian slide I showed you. And so there's been interest in this use of immunomodulating therapies in patients with pneumonia. And um, probably one of the nicer uh, meta-analyses of this topic that came out in Annals um, a couple of years ago, um, you'd have to say that though the point, the overall estimate of effect, these are patients who got corticosteroids, the mortality benefit versus not, a series of large and moderate-sized randomized controlled trials. There's maybe about a 10 to 20% mortality benefit overall. It's just kind of to the left of no effect. But if you stratify the patients by those who have severe versus less severe, essentially all the benefit is in the patients who have severe pneumonia. Now, one of the problems is that what severe pneumonia is varied from study to study, so it's still a little bit of a thorny issue. Most people would say severity is probably at this day and age best judged using what were called the ATS-IDSA criteria. So a major criteria is either that you're ventilated or on pressors. That's a no-brainer. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of minor criteria, which are, for example, laboratory abnormalities like thrombocytopenia or uremia or tachypnea. And when you have two or more likely three of those, that would also count. Uh, and I think we are close, if not there, to the time when we're going to start to have to take this seriously. That 40% benefit is huge. It's just not, it, we can't be not using this if this is true. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do this. Now, a couple of caveats. Um, we know that there are situations where actually this would make things worse. There's actually some counter data that patients with influenza pneumonia do worse when they're treated with corticosteroids. So that's a critical question here, particularly during influenza season, to think about. So that's an issue. Some of these studies try to subsort, subset people by using inflammatory markers. You'd say, oh, maybe we should use procalcitonin or CRP or something to decide who should get the steroids. Maybe. Not clear yet. Right now, this is sort of just severe. Probably not non-severe. But it's probably, if not there yet, very soon going to be, I think, a pretty standard way to think about how to manage patients with pneumonia. Okay. So let me wrap up and then save some time for questions and talk about prevention, because this is, for me, really one of the most amazing stories of the last 20 years, uh, and a really interesting story. So Remember I told you about the um, surveillance network that we set up uh, to look for pneumococcal disease. So here's our map again. Uh, and each dot is the whole, and this is a snapshot of one year. I don't remember which year in particular this is, of where the pneumonia cases were coming from. And each dot represents the home residence of a patient who developed uh, invasive pneumonia that year in this region. We jiggled the dots a little bit to protect the innocent. It was actually an interesting, interesting discussion we had with the journal about whether this was HIPAA protected or not, but can't make this up. All right. Um, so, um, so maps and, and infectious disease are a really great thing, right, and a really interesting history, which we probably should be using more, not less of, right? So this is a famous map. Some people are shaking their head. This is the, the great map that John Snow produced in the cholera outbreak in Soho. Uh, it's a somewhat apocryphal story that... 
that he, he, he saw that all the cases were around the Broad Street pump. And so he took the handle off the pump and the collar went away, which is actually not true. The collar was declining before he took the handle off the pump. But, but nonetheless, uh, I think it was really very much established this idea that, that space and time can really tell you a lot about an illness. So here's just the Philadelphia County part of the map that I showed you. And what I've shaded in here are rates of disease. And the darker the green, the higher the population rate of the disease. And what you can see is that there are some neighborhoods in Philadelphia in which the rate of disease is three, four, five-fold higher than in other neighborhoods. And if you know anything about Philadelphia, the darkest shade neighborhoods are the predominantly black communities in Philadelphia. And if you do, and, and there's many different ways one can ask this question, but if you ask whether that concentration of cases is non-random, right? So not just because there's more people there, not just a statistical random thing, but in fact there is a hot spot. There is some, something's going on here that there's more. The answer is yes. There is more disease in those neighborhoods, and it's not a random effect. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to understand the basis of this observation, which dates back all the way to the early thing I told you, which is why is it the case that some groups have more pneumonia than others? And so fundamentally, you can break this down into three competing hypotheses, or three potential hypotheses. They're not necessarily competing. Um, what I'll call the pathogen hypothesis, which is to say that the pathogens, the bacteria that reside in some communities are more virulent than in other communities. Maybe you just happen to live in a neighborhood where the pneumococci are more invasive or more virulent. Maybe you live in a community where they're not. There's what I'll call the vector hypothesis, so we're going to talk about the vector here, but like whatever's transmitting pneumonia between people, it's a human-human transmitted disease. There must be more of that going on in some neighborhoods than others. Or what I'll call the host hypothesis, which is that some people are more vulnerable in some communities versus others. Okay, and this is depicted here in what's called the classic infectious disease triangle, in which we think about those three vertices. So if we start with the pathogen, remember I told you we've been collecting all these pneumococci for years and years and years, and so you can, of course, fingerprint these pneumococci, and you can ask the genetic distance between cases of pneumonia related to the spatial distance between cases of pneumonia. And if you believe the pathogen hypothesis, you would assume that cases that are closer together in space will be closer together genetically because they've only gone through a few replicate cycles before the next person got that infection. And so this is sort of like a phylogeny tree, and we can actually group the different cases into relatedness, which presumes that they're somewhat closer in the transmission tree. Indirect evidence, but evidence nonetheless. Interesting. I was teaching two days ago, and the World Cup was on outside the room, and let me just say it was challenging. Um, <laughs> So a um, lot of data, a lot of analysis that I'm going to summarize really simply like this. I've given you like the six top cluster groups of pneumococci in Philadelphia, and I've plotted where those cases were. And I'm not even going to attempt to tell you there's any relationship here because there isn't. So the pathogen hypothesis is false. There's no reason to believe that the increased incidence of disease in one region is related to the particular pathogens that are in that region. And in fact, we knew this even before we did this study, because in one of the most amazing things about respiratory illness, the transmission dynamics of these pathogens is so rapid and so extensive that they're widely distributed almost immediately. So you know the Kevin Bacon game, how everybody's interconnected. I often say there's the six degrees of sputum connectedness. We are all just six people apart from each what's in our mouth at this moment. And as gross as that is, 
it's probably close to true. When, when an isolate of an interesting drug resistance is identified in Southeast Asia, it's here in the United States within weeks. And how that gets there, I don't know. But it just lends you to believe that this kind of person-to-person -person pathogen transmission that's true in other types of things, like SCDs, is not true in respiratory infections. So let's talk about the vector. So to understand the vector, you have to decide, well, what is the vector in pneumonia? So it's a human-transmitted disease. There are no fomites. There's no animal reservoir. How do humans get it? They get it from children. Right? Children are the vectors of pneumonia. They are the mosquitoes of this disease. If you wanted to think of some draconian solutions to the problem, you know, think of big bed nets catching children, we would save a lot of older adult lives. Right? Children are the, are, the, are the life cycle when they're colonized with these respiratory pathogens. As we age and develop immunity, we're no longer colonized. And so older adults are actually getting it from younger children is actually what the transmission dynamic is like. And children are like the perfect storm because they're colonized with lots of respiratory pathogens. And they are, per capita, the age group that gets the most antibiotics, by the, by the way. So they're particularly colonized with drug-resistant pathogens. And then they come home from daycare, and they kiss, kiss grandma and kill her, which is sort of a, an awful thought, but probably one to keep in mind as you're thinking about how to protect your parents and yourself. So here's, a, here's, and here's, here's evidence of this. So here's a really lovely study. Um, um, it was done by John Fickelstein and colleagues over at Boston Children's, in which they plotted the probability that kids would be carrying pneumococci and drug-resistant pneumococci in their oropharynx. And it turns out that it is a product of two things. The, oh, pardon me. The fraction of kids who are in daycare in each neighborhood, this is done in mostly in eastern central Massachusetts, and the size of the daycare. So the more kids in daycare and the bigger the daycare, sort of intuitive, the more likely the kids are to be carrying this, and the more likely that community is to have a larger burden of pneumococcal disease. And so now some of the aspects of the map start to take some shape and give us some understanding of why there is such neighborhood variation. It has a lot to do with this very phenomenon, which is really kind of interesting. So let's end and talk about an interesting disruption, which is actually going to break that cycle and I think have a great impact. I told you about Bob Austrian. Bob Austrian developed a vaccine, the polysaccharide vaccine, which took advantage of the polysaccharide capsule of the pneumococci to immunize adults and prevent pneumococcal disease. Turns out that pneumonia and pneumococcal disease is bimodal. It has a peak in the older adults, but it also has a peak in, in infants and young adults. And the polysaccharide vaccine was non-immunogenic, is non-immunogenic in, in infants because it's a type of T-independent immunity that little kids can't mount. And so people figured out that if they took those same polysaccharides and coupled them to a protein carrier, like tetanus toxoid or diphtheria toxoid, and immunized infants, they would get a robust response. And that was the birth of what's called the conjugate vaccine, Prevna, originally a seven-valent, now a 13-valent vaccine. And so they started immunizing kids with this in 1998, 1999, 2000. Uh, and um, what they hadn't anticipated, that's about the... This is the vaccine. These were the serotypes, which were the most prevalent serotypes, the different flavors of polysaccharides on pneumococci. Um, and what they hadn't anticipated, what they expected, was that it was going to reduce the risk of disease in kids, which it did dramatically. I'm going to show you in a second. But what they hadn't really processed was what it was going to do to the carriage of bacteria in kids. So I remember I had gotten my first NIH grant, and this paper came out, which basically looked like in the New England Journal, and it looked like you know, pneumococcal disease eliminated in our lifetime. 
This is the plummeting rate of pneumococcal disease in children since the introduction of conjugate vaccine. This is like the worst thing I could have possibly read in a journal. Um, and, um, you know, this is really a historic public health benefit. And the issues of getting this vaccine worldwide are really politically very interesting, but it's, it's a life-saving intervention. But because it also reduced carriage in these children, there were spillover effects. And what they started to report were that adults, for example, with young children and older adults, perhaps with grandchildren, were also seeing declining rates of pneumonia, and particularly pneumococcal pneumonia, because of this vaccine, which had never been given to them, only given to young children. And that's this concept of herd immunity, which nobody had anticipated as a benefit of this vaccine, but it's turned out to be a profound benefit of this vaccine. Uh, and so lots of ways in which we could show that when the vaccine was put into play, there was the direct effect on the little kids, but there was almost a 65% reduction in older adults as well. Better than anything else we had achieved up to this point. And we had published one of the first papers that actually showed when the vaccine was in short supply, where lots of kids were getting it and lots of kids were not. If you vaccinated your kids, you reduced your risk of getting the disease by 50%. And because kids were carrying the resistant isolates, not just the isolates, the rates of resistance have started to go down, much more than anything else we have done to try to combat drug resistance. Now, we've, in 2010, replaced the PCV7 with PCV13 because some serotypes that weren't common have become more common, so there's a little bit of trying to stay ahead of this. And now, for the first time, we've started to introduce this vaccine into adults. I would say to you, um, that it's an interesting issue, right? So the trial that actually established that this vaccine should be given to adults was done in a country, I think Norway, I could be wrong, where they had yet to actually start pediatric vaccination. So you might predict that the vaccine would be very effective in that setting because there was a lot of pneumococci around. In this country, you know, this is the introduction of the vaccine into children, but this is the rate of disease in adults. And you can see how the rate of disease goes down when it's introduced in children and introduced in children. And here's the recommendation to now give the vaccine to adults. It's very unclear whether adults will get any benefit from this vaccine now that we've effectively eliminated the reservoir in children. So we'll see. It's sort of out there. I mean, I don't think that that's a reason to not vaccinate adults, but I think it is, gives one pause as to what's really going on here. Um, but I think as a strategy, and to give one hope here, this has been really a profoundly exciting development in this space. And I think more than any advances that we've had on the diagnostic or therapeutic side is really changing the landscape. Now, one of the problems is we still see a lot of patients showing up with lower respiratory tract infections, pneumonia. So if it isn't this, what is it? And I'm guessing, and I think there's growing data, that increasingly what we're fighting are viral lower respiratory infections. And that's an opportunity but a problem at the moment because our armamentarium is much more limited. And we're going to have to decide what to do about that. So I uh, told you about the diagnostic dilemma. Uh, I think it's still a challenge. I think procalcitonin is helpful, uh, particularly in understanding how long to treat somebody, but maybe not in deciding whether to treat somebody. We've talked about treatment. Uh, I've talked a lot about empirical treatment and the concerns over drug resistance and how it's led to, I think, some bad decision-making that we can hopefully unpackage. And I think a really interesting opportunity to get a lot of benefit soon by using corticosteroids. And then I ended with this story about prevention where I think we had a very unintended but really powerful effect by thinking about the transmission cycle and this kind of triad by disrupting the transmission piece of it. And I think that has been really powerful. 
Um, I've been fortunate in my career to work with a ton of people, some of whom are listed here. Uh, but mostly I thank you for your time and happy to take a few questions. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. Can you speak a little about the whole squirrel from your own I mean, you showed this, these are incredibly effective drugs, yet even just yesterday got another FDA warning about using them. Yeah. Um, has anyone looked at the specific risk-benefit? I mean, I know there are concerns about some of these adverse effects, but I don't have a good sense of, the, you know, the incidence of them versus the benefit from using it. Yeah. So it's a fascinating story. I, I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but you know, the, re the resistance to fluoroquinolones is about zero. So why is that? So it turns out that the reason that there's no fluoroquinolone resistance is that we don't use the, that antibiotic in kids. And the reason we don't use that antibiotic in kids is because I think you could think little beagles, I believe, that develop tendinopathies in the early pre-marketing studies. Uh, and so it has nothing to do with the drug. It has to do with this whole kid hypothesis that I've been telling you about, that there's been no selection for fluoroquinone-resistant respiratory pathogens. And so it remains an incredibly effective drug against the traditional respiratory pathogens. But then you have to weigh it against, as you pointed out, this preponderance or increasing litany of concerns that we have about these drugs. Um, we have tried to push away with putting that as the substitute, particularly in light of what I told you about the macrolides. Um, there is some growing comfort about the idea of using beta-lactams, although I think it's controversial. In the UK, it is still the first-line recommended therapy. I think doxycycline is still a very powerful drug. Its resistance has gone up, too, but not nearly as much as macrolides. Um, so I, I would certainly agree with you that if that becomes our only drug or our main drug, that's a problem. Um, uh, but it is a very useful drug, I have to say, for the reason that I just told you about the resistance. Any other um, in thinking about uh, value-based care and procalcitonin um, measurement, I, I think a lot of us aren't really familiar with using procalcitonin, but if you're saying it could be helpful in terms of duration of antibiotics, was there that much of a difference in the duration determined by the procalcitonin as opposed to um, just following general recommendations, you know, for five to seven days of antibiotics? Is there that much of a yeah, so I think if your practice is to, to, to pre prescribe for five to seven days, which I think is correct, um, with almost no exceptions, there are a few, um, then I don't think procalcitonin is going to make a, any kind of real serious benefit here. Um, if you're contemplating or tend to prescribe for 10 to 14 days, and there are a lot of people that still do that, although there's really very little evidence in support of that, then we would push the use of procalcitonin as a way to leverage people to reduce by five to seven days the duration of antibiotics. The antibiotic story and resistance, I think one of the most important parts of it is the longer you take it, the more resistance there's going to be. And so although I'm not trying to be cavalier about one or two days of anything, there's always risk. That is much, much less than 10 to 14 to 28 days of something. Uh, and so I think if it can nip away at that part of the curve, it's worth it, at least in a public health point of view. Putting a dollar amount on it in terms of days of antibiotics averted, I, I'm not so sure that would make sense. It would depend on the cost of the test how it's done and whether it's a point-of-care test or not. There's a variety of sort of particular delivery issues that are still not worked out. Any other questions? Question. When you're talking about the antibiotic stewardship, you know, a lot of these guidelines are kind of practicing in the vacuum. There's no comorbidities taken into account. When you think really you got a frail elderly person with a reduced immune response with COPD who shows up with these vague 
respiratory symptoms. You think who's really going to walk out the door with an antibiotic and you work backwards? Those are the people who are going to leave. So how does COPD exacerbation antibiotic treatment kind of go into play with this for you know, somebody who really doesn't have the resources like we do here with imaging and blood work, just, you know. Right. Well, all this, I, so I totally agree with the point here that, like, to be pointy-headed and say, like, you need to do all this testing and imaging on everybody is really just not going to play, right? This, these are people showing up everywhere. And so we need something that's more pragmatic. I, I want to be clear, nothing I've talked about here is specifically related to what we know about the management of acute exacerbations of chronic bronchitis or chronic lung disease. And indeed, we know that particularly patients with severe COPD and other chronic lung disease, pseudomonas is a particular issue. And one of the things that we're debating back and forth is whether it's enough of an issue to consider it up front or not. For sure, we know that if you previously isolated pseudomonas or previously isolated MRSA, particularly from the respiratory tract, you should definitely pay attention to that when you're treating them. So I agree overall that there are certainly some high-risk individuals for which being dogmatic and narrow and saying you're just getting, you know, a beta-lactam and a macrolide is silly. I mean, these are life-saving therapies in the right patients. And honestly, if we reserved broader therapies for really just the sickest of the sick or the most frail, I think the, the magnitude of the problem would go down. The data that have come out in the last couple of years is that these types of therapies are being used just all over the place for people who've had the most casual contacts with the healthcare system, members of the family. I mean, it's just really been explosive in a way that's not helping anybody. Okay, so uh, one more question. One more question. You know, of course, that Pneumovax is a major quality indicator, and we get report cards and things like that about and yet, I think you just said that uh, the benefit for the older population is somewhat questionable. Would you extend those comments a little bit? Well, let's distinguish two different vaccines. There's Pneumovax, which is the original polysaccharide vaccine, and there's Prevnar, which is the conjugate vaccine. Pneumovax is the one that's been the most focus of attention. It covers many more serotypes, and so even if we had complete universal use of Prevnar in kids, there would still be other forms of pneumococcide that are not covered. So I think the benefit of Pneumovax is still real. I will just say, as a controversial point, it's never been shown to actually really save lives or prevent pneumonia in older adults. What it's been shown to do is reduce the risk of bacteremic pneumonia, and lots of heated discussions in rooms like this about people, whether that's enough to recommend it or not. It's perfectly safe, for, for the record. So I think it's, it's reasonable to stay in the armamentarium. I'm raising questions about the role of conjugate vaccine in older adults, which has now become part of the immunization schedule, um, and I think Time will tell whether that's really value-added or not. Okay. Well, so thank you very much. Um, this has been a great talk. Thank you.